Thanks, Naya. Uh, yeah, again, my name is Tim. Uh, glad to have you with us this morning. I'm one of the pastors uh, here. We're going to be in Genesis uh, 2 this morning, so if you have a Bible, you can turn it there. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to go back and grab one um, on the, uh, the back table. And uh, if you're a kid, we have family bags as well as Kids Connects um, to help you follow along the sermon uh, at your level, if that's, if that's your preference. Um, with that, uh, before I jump in, um, I want to pray for us and ask for, for God's help. And so uh, let's pray. Father God, each week um, I enter this place to sing and pray and hear your, your word read and preach, and God, I fear I can do all those things and never, never deal with you, not hear from you, not listen to you, not, not yield my life to you, but just come in and do the practices and, and move on, and I, I pray none of us would do that this morning. God, as we sing, as we, as we open your word now. Help us to deal with you, God. Help us, help us to put you at the center of our lives, we pray and ask. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in uh, week four of a, a seven-week series where we've been, been looking at different stories that our culture uh, is, is trying to sell us, trying to get us to live into. And I, I think it's important to say these, are, these aren't ideas that they're trying to convince us to believe. They're stories they're trying to get us to live into. And so the first week we looked at the story, You Only Live Once. Um, you know, I got to say YOLO and I got to make fun of me for that. Uh, so week two was Be True to Yourself. Week three, last week, Naya talked about uh, it's, it's just a job. And what we've tried to do is look at these cultural stories through the lens of the gospel story, and in particular Genesis 1 through 3, seeing why in some ways the stories our cultures tell us are, are is very true, and yet at the same time we feel like at some point they break down in the gospel is telling a better story, a story worth living. So today, so the story we're going to look at uh, is, is a prominent saying within our, our culture, and it's, it's religion should be kept private. And one quick look around the world, it's not hard to see why people would make the case for this or why people would argue this, that people fight and kill in the name of religion. People try to coerce others to practice their faith. Often religious is, religion is used in a, as an oppressive tool against Others and, and beyond just those big things, just when we start, anytime we start talking about religion, um, we start disagreeing about religion, friendships get destroyed, family dinners get ruined, relationships are strained. So religion should just be kept private. That's a story our culture wants us to live in. And, and we want to ask this morning, what does the gospel say in response to that? What does the story of the Bible say in response to that? And I want to look I want to look at this cultural story kind of in three ways. The first, religion really should be kept private, should be private. Um, second, religion can never only be private. And then thirdly, a public religion worth living. So first, religion, uh, religion should be, it must be private. But I think the key behind this, this cultural story is, is actually something, something good, that religion should be a deeply personal part of you, that no one can be coerced or forced into worshiping a, a particular God. And so there, there are a couple of ways I think this story is true, that religion should be kept private. At first, it rightly condemns religious oppression. Now, Ricky Gervais, an, an atheist comedian, he, uh, he put it like this on Twitter. He said, bored of watching atheists argue over religion on, on Twitter, turn on TV and watch religious people kill over it in real life. We get, that's just not a disputable point. Throughout the history of the world, religion has been used... Um, as a means of violence, and especially in our own culture, post 
There's a fear within our own society that any public religion that's committed to its way of the truth, to believe it's, it has the truth and everyone else is wrong, is going to necessarily potentially lead to, to violence. That if you think your religion and your way of life is right and, and others are wrong, then what are you willing to do to show others that you're right? But I, I think the, some of the most dangerous words that pastors, priests, um, rabbis, imams, whatever religion can say Some of the most dangerous words are, God told me. Those words have led to incredible evil and suffering and violence. And as Christians, we we should be able to acknowledge that and be able to acknowledge that people in the name of Jesus have done violence and oppression and coercion and hurt others. And that's really where this this, this phrase, religion should be kept private, that's a part of where it's coming from. And we we should affirm that. But also, the second piece that, that I think we can affirm as Christians to this cultural story is that, that it rightly denies that you're saved by your group. And for much of history, the assumption has been that if you're born into a certain denomination, a certain religion, a certain nation, um, then what saves you is that you're a part of this group that's better than everyone else. You're in the right group. All the other groups are wrong. Your nation is right. The other nations are wrong. Your politics are right. And that saves you because the people with the other politics are wrong and they're not saved. And yeah, one of the central teachings of Christianity, of the Hebrew Scriptures, is that your last name, the family that you are born into, your religious affiliation, what you check on your census, it has no bearing on your salvation whatsoever. I'll take Genesis 2, for example. We haven't haven't really unpacked all three of those chapters, but what happens in those three chapters is you have Adam and Eve created by God. So they have the best potential parents, the best lineage imaginable, God himself, Um, They live in the best possible place to be saved, the Garden of Eden, where there's pleasures untold. They literally walk with God God in the Garden of of Eden. So they're in the right place. They're in the right family. They have the right lineage. And what happens is they reject God. They're not saved, and they're kicked out of the Garden. They're in the right place with the right lineage, with the right God, but they weren't right. And ultimately, because they, they rejected a personal trust in God, they weren't saved. Their name didn't matter. Their group didn't matter. It was, it was a personal thing that they rejected. And so religion should be kept private, I think, is a way of saying, if you are religion, religious, you should deal with God personally. Right? You're not just in a group. You're not just in a denomination, a tribe, a brand of, of politics. It's, it's a way of saying, if, if you're going to be religious, it should be something deeply important and personal to you. You, you, should, you should be committed to dealing with God personally if you are religious. And I think it's easy. We should be able to agree with those, those two things. When you hear that saying, religion should be kept private, there should be, be a means of agreement for us, I think, from within the Christian story. And yet I would say, religion can never be only private. It's, it's actually impossible to have a, a purely private religion. Let me explain it like this. I served for two years at campus ministry at Indiana University, and one, of, one part of my job there was to, uh, to go to CARLA meetings, and CARLA stood for the Campus Religious Leaders Association. So I went to those meetings twice a month, and those meetings are even more boring than how they sound to you, right? Now, with one exception, when religious people disagree, it's fun. Like, it gets, people get animated, and that's when the meetings would be interesting to go to, because people would fight with one another. And so there was one of those occasions um, uh, that there was a fight happening sort of in the, the room, and what happened was there was a group of Christians on campus who were having an event, and the, the expressed goal of the event was to convert people to Christianity. And the people at uh, about half the Religious Leaders Association was against 
um, any attempt at conversion ever by any campus ministry, no matter their religious affiliation. So that group was very angry with those of us in the group, even though I didn't have anything to do with that event, with the idea that there would be people trying to convert other people on the religion. So we spent about an hour in this meeting getting yelled at by people who thought trying to convert people at any time is wrong. Um, which sadly the irony was lost in what they were doing because they were spending an hour yelling at us trying to convert us so that we would never convert anyone else. The irony was lost on, on them in that position. And sad, like religious people have a terrible sense of humor. And so they, they, we could have laughed at this like, hey, you guys are mad at us for doing what you're doing right now. Like this is, this is actually happening. right? You're trying to convert me to your way of religion, to your way of, of God. And what, what that moment displays is the fact that you... You, we all have these deeply held convictions that are necessarily public. They have public implications. That either you think conversion is, you have to do this, and it's a part of your religion, religious faith, or you think it's, it's bad and it's wrong, and you can't do it, and you have to stop the people that are. Well, both of those have public implications. So here's my point. My point is, is first, the reason why religion can never be only private is that a private religion is impossible. And think of it like this. What, what is faith itself? What is religion? What is a religious belief? And most people answer that question by saying, well, that's Christianity, and that's Islam, that's Judaism. But those, aren't, those are organized religions. That's not what religion is. What, what is religion? Religion, it's a set of claims that all of us have. Whether you believe in God or whether you don't believe in God, we all have claims about what is true what is good, what is beautiful. Religious claims are, are, are ultimate truth claims. And you don't have to be in an organized religion to have those. We all have those beliefs. The religious claims, they're claims about what will lead to, her, to human flourishing and what will lead to human suffering. What you think is wrong about this world and what you think will set it right. We all have those beliefs. You don't have to be a religious person to have those. And so all of us, whether we're religious or not, we have these claims. Atheists, agnostics have these claims. Christians, Jews have these sorts of claims. And that's why a private religion is impossible. Because the moment we, we start organizing a society and decide, well, what is justice? And what leads to human flourishing? And what laws are good? What laws are, are evil? The moment we start deciding as a society how we want to live and how we want to be, you cannot just take religion off the table. We're all bringing our own religion at that point. We all have these claims. Now, for example, who are the poor and vulnerable? Who deserves human rights and who doesn't? For me, and, and out of my faith tradition, I would say every human life, whether it's in the womb or out of the womb, should receive human rights and human protection. That's, that's, it, I can't imagine a more poor or a vulnerable human being than a human life in a mother's womb. But most of society would not, would disagree with that, would say, well, that's not, that's not a human life that deserves human rights. So who, but both... Both, get, both are religious claims about a human being and what a human being is and what, what, who gets human rights. And who, they're both religious claims. One's not public, one's not private. I think of it like this. What, one question we've been asking in society over the last couple of years is what, what is, what is marriage itself? And in particular, should a, a Christian who's a photographer um, who believes a marriage ceremony is a worship service to God, should they... Should they have the freedom to deny participating in a same-sex wedding if that, that disagrees with their conscious right? And on the flip side of that, should someone be able to be discriminated against because of their, their sexual orientation? These are competing religious claims about if there's a God, about what kind of God there is, about what God affirms and what doesn't, and, and, and where you should worship and where you can't. 
And often what happens is we, we tend to say, well, one religion should be private and, and everything else is on the table. But the reality is we all have these claims that are public. And one of the reasons I think as a culture we can't deal with these questions in humility and in, in honesty is because, it's because often what ends up happening is, is one group says to the other group, uh, well, what I mean by religion should be kept private is your religion should be kept private. And my religion should be public. And let's be real, Christians, we've done this to others. We've, we've denied suppressed rights so that our religion would have the sway of the day. And so today, these tensions are real within our, our culture, but largely they're real because there's this, this assumption that, well, your religion should be private, when that's impossible. We all have these claims. We all have these ultimate truth claims that we think explain the world. And the moment you start living life, they get worked out into public, whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, Christian, Jew, so private religion, it's impossible, um, for one. But two, in particular within the Christian faith, this is impossible for us because core to our own faith is we are sent into public as witnesses for a public faith. And so that, this idea, there's a private part of you that's religious, um, that, that stays on Sunday morning and the rest of your week, it has no bearing on how you work or how you, you parents or how you go about your work within the community. Like that, that's completely antithetical to the storyline of the gospel. And so what I want to do is just instead of like looking at Genesis 1 through 3 today, we're actually going to kind of look at the storyline of, of how our, our faith is to be public and is to be worked out into the world. And so the storyline starts in Genesis 2, and, and in particular in Genesis 2, 15, when God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, he, he, he wants them to do something. And so verse 15 is, is crucial. Here's what it says. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And those two words, to work it and keep it, they, they're, they're often together in the Hebrew Scriptures whenever, whenever there's, the priests are doing work in the temple. And so what Hebrew commentators have pointed out is that these two words, work and keep, in the garden and then in temples, refer to um, this, this idea that the original garden was supposed to be a temple. That Adam and Eve was to, to, to work and keep and live in the presence of God all of their life, their work life, their worship life. It was all to be lived in the same place. And however, what, what happens is Adam and Eve reject that reality, reject God. They, they try to hide a part of themselves from God. And the result is sin and everything breaks. They're kicked out of, of the garden. But the original design for this Garden of Eden that Naya talked about last week was that, that it was to be a place of worship from which then we were to expand in all of the world. And the whole world was to be a temple, a Garden of Eden in which we lived and worked and worshipped and lived before our, our God. But that breaks. And so they're kicked out of the garden. That's not possible anymore. And yet God still desires for us to live our whole lives in his presence. And what he does next is in Genesis 12, he goes to a man named Abraham and says to Abraham, I want, I want to bless you. I want to make, make you into a nation, make your descendants into a nation. And here's what God says to Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so what God does now, instead of the whole world being a temple of God's presence that we were supposed to live in, now there's this, this chosen people whom God is going to make his presence known among. And that people then is to take that presence to the rest of the world, to be a blessing to the rest of the world. And you fast forward a couple, a few thousand years from there, and from that people, that nation Israel, comes Jesus, who it's, is, is its Messiah. And Jesus, his whole mission isn't just to save and, and, and seek after individual sinners to get them into heaven, but it's to create this people to continue this idea of people who are to, to spread out in force into the world. And so here's what Jesus says in Matthew 16 about what he came to do. He says, I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, religious people like to debate uh, this verse a lot and miss the main point, which the main point Jesus is making here is that he's saying, I've come to start a community of people called the church, and they're going to confront evil and, and overcome hell itself in this world. And so the story of God has moved from a garden to a man named Abraham, to a nation Israel that God said is to bless the entire world, to this man, Jesus, who is its Messiah, who is then going to continue this presence into the world through his own church, through his people, the church. And Paul builds on this theme in the New Testament in Ephesians 2, when he talks about what the church, what's happening in the church, what hap- what's happening when we gather as Christians <clears throat> together. He says this in Ephesians 2, verse 22. He says, in him, in Christ... You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now what Paul says is local churches are, are now the place where God's presence dwells. Where it's formed together by the Spirit into the presence of God. And Jesus' parting words to his disciple in Acts 1 is, This is not a private promise for us to hold on to to get into heaven. This is to be a public witness we are to tell to the world. So in Acts 1 as Jesus is leaving his disciples for a final time, he says this to them. He says, you, you the church, you my disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what I, what I hope to do with this storyline is to say, like, we are to be public witnesses of the presence of God to the world. We cannot keep our faith private. It is, it is antithetical to the Christian story that God's presence would be dwelling among a people and we hide that and, re- and not go and tell the world, God is real, he's present among us. And yet, to go back to where we started, how, how does that storyline, that claim I just made, not lead us as Christians to be arrogant against the rest of the world, not lead us to coerce or to oppress or to step down on the rights of others of those who disagree with us? Right, I've just said the Christian story is the true story. God's presence is actually dwelt here among us as his church. So how does that not devolve into the trap where religion, our religion, our faith, our church would become an oppressive force in our world? Well, that's where I want to end and, and talk about what, what a public religion should look like, what Christianity lived out in public should look like. And there's obviously lots we could say to this, but I want to focus on two things um, this morning, what it is to have a proper public Christian faith. First is, the first thing we're called to do as public witnesses of Jesus is to build up the local church. The religion should be kept private has a lot, a lot good to it that I, I spoke to in point one, but I, I think it's been one of the most destructive forces in the church because I think a lot of people view our faith primarily through an individualistic lens. The private faith often makes uh, faith just about me and about Jesus, the faith, faith becomes a private story disconnected from a public witness to Jesus to build up a local church, a place that is to outlast us, that is to storm the gates of hell and overcome them. The story you've entered into in the gospel, it's not about you and, your, and, and Jesus and getting to heaven one day. It's about you and a church that Jesus is founding to strengthen this world. And what can begin to happen is we, we slowly... And subtly begin to look at the church through a a consumeristic lens. More focus is put on what the church is doing for you instead of what you're called to do to help build up the local church. That we slowly, subtly begin to believe that we can have faith in Jesus and not be concerned with the vibrancy and the health and the long-term nature of the local church. That the vibrancy and health of a local church is rarely considered in our cultural day. Instead, what's, what's 
What's prized is individual faith experiences. That we don't sit down and think, am I, am I building a church that will last for my kids and my grandkids, will, that will be here in this community beyond, beyond our time and into the future? So one reason why building a building is so important to us, it's not about making it easier on us, is we want institutional viability. I want this place to exist 100 years after I'm dead, if Jesus should tarry. So those are the questions I think the storyline would ask would cause us to ask, not just am I saved and going to heaven, but is the church being built up because of my presence? And I know I'm a pastor, so I carry self-interest here. And I know I'm a a church planning pastor, so I carry even more self-interest here. And even more than that, I'm a church planning pastor with about 60 kids in children's ministry every Sunday. So I carry a massive amount of self-interest here to, to make this point. And yeah, I wasn't always a pastor, and I didn't have to be a pastor, and I didn't have to be a church planning pastor. And so why, why to me is the, eff- the effort to build up a new local congregation with all the setup and teardown when we have four other buildings around Kansas City we could all go and meet to this morning and not put in the work here for Shawnee? Why, why do this? And I hope you, you already have your answer. It's Ephesians 2. It's what we just read a few minutes ago. What Paul says happens when a church is formed. In him, in Christ... You are being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. But that's what happens in the local church. And if, if your response is, I don't feel that or I don't, I don't see that, um, that's what's happening. But if you want more of, of God, you have to go to where he is. And where he is, where his presence is promised, is in the local church. And if this world is going to get more of who God is, it needs more local, healthy, viable churches. It's one of the reasons why our primary global partner is the China Partnership, why I went to China twice this year to meet with and to encourage to get to know Chinese church planners, because we want as many local churches in China as possible. They need hundreds of thousands of more churches, to, to be honest, and we, we want to help support that work. It's why we are praying through and working with a church planner in the Ivanhoe neighborhood, um, church planners, Daryl and Stephanie Anser, um, New Community Church here in Kansas City, because it's, it's an economically vulnerable area, and we think economically vulnerable areas need churches to help spur business and economic flourishing, so we're working with them to help start new, cha- new churches in Kansas City, and it's why also we'll continue to look to plant new churches, new campuses from within Christ Community as well, because what we believe this world needs is more local churches. And yes, not, not perfect places. When I say God's presence dwells here, I don't mean that's, that's easy. Anytime God shows up anywhere, he, things get messed up. Right? That's, just, that's just what happens. You read through the, the scriptures. And, and yet, I still, I still say what the church needs is local churches, more local churches, messy local churches, where sinners get frustrated with one another and let each other down. And then each week, gather around a table and remind ourselves, God dwells here. Not because we're right. Not because we, have, we get the truth and everyone else is wrong. But because the Son of God broke his body to make us a church. He shed his blood to make us a church so we can be in community together again. That Jesus broke his body, he shed his blood to be a public witness to the world, that God's presence is real, there is hope, there is grace, there is forgiveness for shame, and there is a community where, where truly, if we live the gospel, anyone can be welcome. There is not another place like the local church that, that has that message where God's presence 
would dwell. And that's why we, we need your help, not just in coming to the local church, but helping us build up the local church. That is central to your public witness as Christian, is to help create and sustain a church that will outlast you. So that's one reason, um, or one component of a public religion. The second is, is, as Christians in particular, we should have a willingness to suffer. Let's go back to Ricky Gervais for a minute. His tweets, uh, Bored of watching atheists argue over religion on uh, Twitter. Turn on TV, watch religious people kill over it in real life. And I, I said, listen, you can't argue that. And yet I would also say to Gervais, the problem isn't religion or organized religion here, because I can point to just as many atheists who have killed, killed tens of millions of people. Stalin was an atheist, killed tens of millions of people. Pol Pot in Cambodia was an atheist, killed one to three million people. The problem isn't religion, because we all have religion. We all have ultimate truth claims about how we see the world that could lead us, whether we believe in God or not, to violence, to, to coercion, to oppression of others. And so the question is not, do you have exclusive truth claims? The question is, what are they? Are they, are they claims that will lead you to, to cause others to suffer or, or would, be, would cause you to be willing to suffer for others? What is the center of the story that you're living because the center of the gospel, the center of the Christian story, is that God sent his son to die for his enemies. That son forgave his enemies through an excruciating death on the cross. And that son then invited his enemies to come and eat with him at a table and taste his salvation. That's the center of our story. And imagine a local church that lived out of the center of that story. We would be marked by, as a people who first prayed for our enemies. Before we ever threw shots at them, right, got angry at them, we would pray first. Jesus literally prayed for his enemies while they crucified him. Do we do that? Do we pray for those who disagree with us, who, who oppose us? And if we lived into this as a local church, we would have a firm and yet humble tone. That Jesus didn't cave on truth. He didn't back down to anyone. And yet he also attracted people who found him off-putting or disagreed with him because he, he affirmed their dignity as human beings. He listened to them. He engaged them. That if we lived in this as a local church, we would believe every human being is made in God's image, which means we couldn't roll our eyes at anyone. We couldn't write anyone off. We couldn't sneer at anyone. Because every person we encounter is a person for whom Christ died. And if he was worth Jesus' own blood, he's worth your own suffering. If we were a local church who lived in the center of our story, we, we would be willing to suffer, whether it be financial, whether it be physical, whether it be personal, emotional, in order to hold fast to our convictions to be faithful to Jesus. Before we, fact, we, we expected others to bend to our wills, we would be willing to, to yield to theirs. And we have a long way to go as a church here, and frankly in our culture, we have, we have a lot working against us, a lot of churches who don't live out of the center of this story. And yet, that's even that fact is, is, to me, a reminder of the beauty of the local church because God meets his church in our sin. Our failure to live up to who we are, are to be as a church, and every week he keeps inviting us back to his table to remind us, you were saved because my son's body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you. You're not saved because you're right or in the right group or you're, everybody else has, 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 has left, left the truth and you alone, have, that's not why we are saved. We are saved because the Son of God entered into our world and suffered for us and died 
for us. And imagine a people who took that witness into the world and lived out of the center of that story. Who lived not with the conviction that we are right and everyone else is wrong, but we lived at his table. And it's at that table that this community of hope, a church, is why our faith should never be kept private. Let's pray. Father God, I am in awe of the salvation that you offer us. That though we have all sinned, you sent your son into this world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. To save us, to save me. God, you meet me in my sin. And you save me through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is a salvation that we stand in awe of. And so I pray, God, today we would live out of the center of that story. And as we take this story out into our neighborhoods and our community, our workplaces, God, we would live from the center, which is that the Son of God died for his enemies, convicted by the truth, unyielding, and yet, yet willing to shed blood to bring people into your kingdom. God, may we live that story, I pray in his name. Amen.